0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Will Guantanamo ever be closed down? Some people are still there all these years after 9-11. So why are they still being held? When will it end? Well, Jay Connell is representing one of those who remains there, Amar Baluch, and we'll hear about him and his case a little later on in this conversation. But first of all, Jay Connell, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And just tell us about your involvement. You're a U.S. lawyer.
0: I am an American lawyer and I have a contract with the Department of Defense to provide defense services to Guantanamo detainee Amar Albaluchi. I first got involved in 2008 and then have been working for Mr. Albaluchi on behalf of Mr. Albaluchi since 2011, full-time.
1: Really? So that's a full-time job for 12 years?
0: Yes, that's right. It's been an enormous long haul.
1: And, And before you were involved in Guantanamo, what sort of work were you doing?
0: I started my career as a, what we call in the United States a criminal defense attorney and in 2003 started working on death penalty cases most of the time and worked on death penalty cases in Virginia and Texas and the District of Columbia.
1: And I don't know if it's where you thought your legal career would end up, but you, you, you you're, you're, a, you're a sort of employee of the Pentagon or paid by the Pentagon in some way.
0: I am paid by them. I'm not an employee. I have professional independence and I can make my own decisions about how to, to run the case. Uh, but it is true that it's lasted much longer than I ever expected. When I first took the job in in 2011 to work on it full time, they told me that it would only last 18 months. I left my furniture in my old office. I maintained an interest in the building and then 3 years later my old partners came to me and said you got to get your furniture out of the office you're never coming back
1: right and they were right at least so far so can you just let's go back to the beginning of Guantanamo and just can you remind us why was it set up
0: Guantanamo was set up because in the legal thinking of the Bush administration it was legal equivalent of outer space meaning that the Bush administration thought that it was a place they could operate outside the bounds of law because it was a US military base on territory which was originally leased from the Cuban government. And the Bush administration thought that that meant that the United States Constitution wouldn't apply, that the laws uh, governing how prisoners are handled would not apply, and that they could essentially have free reign to do whatever they wanted.
1: And do you know whether at the beginning, they had, I mean, what's become one of the most controversial aspects of Guantanamo, torture in mind?
0: Guantanamo started in January of 2002, which was before or right around the time that the CIA torture program began. And those two things were parallel at the beginning. They weren't, it wasn't until later that people were transferred from the CIA torture program to Guantanamo. So I don't know that they had torture specifically in mind at the beginning, but they certainly had the idea at the beginning that they could operate beyond the bounds of the Geneva Conventions, beyond the bounds of the prohibition of torture in the United States and beyond the bounds of the uh, requirement not to use cruel and inhuman punishment.
1: How many prisoners were there in Guantanamo at the, at the, at the highest point, the, the biggest number?
0: The biggest number that there have ever been are about six hundred and sixty, but overall seven hundred and eighty about seven hundred and eighty men have passed through Guantanamo. I say about because in the early days the Department of Defense was um, exceptionally non-transparent about how many people it was holding it wouldn't identify who they were or even numbers so there are there is a little bit of wiggle room around exactly how many people have been through Guantanamo
1: and how many remain now thirty one 31 are left. Uh, we'll talk more about who they are and why they're still there a little later. But I just want to talk about the, the 750, if you like, or the 749 who, who've been through Guantanamo and got out. Now, can you split the, that group in, in, into categories for us, different types of prisoner?
0: One way you can categorize them is by who released them. So by far, the most prisoners were released from Guantanamo by the Bush administration itself. They released about 540 prisoners who came through and were held for a shorter or or medium length of time. Uh, The Obama administration released about 200. The Trump administration released one, and the Biden administration has released six. So you, you very much see that most prisoners were released from Guantanamo many years ago in the Trump, in the, excuse me, in the Bush administration.
1: Is it your view that those in that first tranche, you know, that, that in the Bush administration, the, the hundreds who were released, were released because they should never have been there in the first place. I mean, you could argue no one should ever have been there. But uh, that, you know, they're, they're different in that they were completely innocent of any wrongdoing, and were just picked up by people in Pakistan who were after the reward money.
0: Well, there's certainly a large number of people who fall into that category. There's also a large category of people who were just ordinary fighters. Who in an who in an ordinary war, where the United States recognized the application of the Geneva Convention um, to state fighters of a of an adversary, then they were just you know the equivalents of privates uh, who were you know in, engaged in ordinary warfighting activities. There's this idea to cast it all as terrorism. But in fact, very few of the people who came through Guantanamo were involved in asymmetrical type warfare, which might be considered terrorism. Many more people were simply either should never, like really had nothing to do with uh, warfighting at all, or were just low level, low ranking people within the Taliban army.
1: Right, so the Taliban army. I'm just trying. I was trying to see where you were going with that. So the Taliban army were at that time. Yes, they were the government of of Afghanistan, weren't they? So these were people who were government soldiers, actually.
0: Yeah, that's right. There were a lot of those.
1: Yeah, and and then there must be a group which obviously no one's, Well, I think one person's been convicted, haven't they, uh, since 9/11 of involvement in 9/11. Uh, but there are people who, let's say media and other reporting would suggest were involved in al qaeda in the 9/11 plot
0: sure i'll talk to your actual question but i also want to say that no one at guantanamo has ever been convicted of involvement in anything related to 9/11 there's only two people who've been convicted in recent years at Guantanamo. Al Balul is uh, currently serving a sentence there. His uh, charges didn't have anything to do with 9-11. And then Majid Khan recently completed a sentence and was released, and his charges didn't have anything to do with 9-11. There was one person who was prosecuted in the United States uh, in Eastern District of Virginia in a regular civilian court. Uh, that was Masawi, But at the end, even his charges did not have anything to do with 9/11. They were related to some other possible attack. But to your actual point, yes, there's an actual prosecution going on at Guantanamo uh, against five men, uh, originally six, but now five, and uh, for the conspiracy which led to 9/11. The one person who used to be in that charges, uh, the charge set, but isn't anymore, is interesting, Al Qatani, because. Originally, he was charged when I was first in, involved in the case back in 2008, uh, but they, the convening authority, the person who makes the decision about who will be charged, dropped the charges against him because they uh, she knew that he had been tortured. And there was a key difference between that man, al Qatani, and the other five, which is al Qatani had been a, a Department of Defense prisoner at Guantanamo the whole time. Whereas the other five were CIA prisoners, meaning that the person who made the decisions, the convening authority, had access to information about the torture of al-Qahtani, but didn't have any access to, to information about the torture of the other five men.
1: But it is your view that all six were tortured?
0: Oh, yes. There's no, no, not really any question about it. Exactly.
1: So one just happened to be tortured by someone who left more paperwork? Precisely. Right. Uh, And so, uh, by the way, of the uh, hundreds who were in Guantanamo, what proportion would you say were tortured?
0: International law uh, sets out sort of two kind of prohibited levels of conduct. One of those is torture specifically. One of those is cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. Uh, which is a category which doesn't necessarily involve the infliction of pain for the obtaining of information, but it in still involves intentional infliction of pain. And I would say basically everybody who's been through Guantanamo falls into that category of cruel and human degrading treatment. We know that all 16 of the men who were transferred from the CIA torture program into Guantanamo uh, in 2006, 2007, and 2008 were tortured. Uh, and we know we have information about uh a smaller number of men specifically who were tortured at Guantanamo, like, like al Qatani and Slahi.
1: Right. And I think it would help, actually, just if you could run through the various US agencies that have been involved in this and what their role was, because, you know, you're talking about the Pentagon and the CIA and no doubt other agencies too. Can you just sort of run through that for us so it's easier to understand who was involved from the US state point of view?
0: So there are really four main agencies that are involved in some way. The first is, and let's talk about the the so-called high-value prisoners, the, which is a, a substantial number of the people who are still there. And, and when you ask about the 9/11 case or the bombing of the USS Cole or one of the other big cases, that's that's what we're talking about: is men who were captured either by the CIA or by a partner agencies from other countries, often just snatched off the street, and then they were taken into a program that was blessed by the Bush administration, but was designed to inflict pain on them to get information from them. Now, it really succeeded in the first and inflicted a lot of pain, although there were serious, serious questions about how good the information they got out of it were. That brings us to the second agency which was involved, which is the FBI. Although the FBI has often tried to publicly keep its distance from the CIA torture program, In fact, it was involved in a information sharing program where it would send questions uh, to the black sites. CIA torturers would get the information from the detainees there, and then they would distribute the information to the information community, including the FBI. Then, and parallel with that, in 2002, the Department of Defense began maintaining Guantanamo. And then in 2006, President Bush ordered many most of the men who were in the cia torture program transferred to guantanamo and then two came later and then the there's one last role that we should mention is that the department of state which is the the ministry in the united states which handles foreign relations uh, is also involved at the back end of this process because for each of these men, each of these 750 who've already been through it, or the 31 who are still there, there has to be negotiation either with their home country or another country to resettle them or to repatriate them.
1: Well, let me just sort of ask you about that bit since you since that's come up. I, I think there is a study which tried to estimate the number of people who've been released who went on to rejoin the battle, if you like. I mean, I might just say, I, I met, of the 750, I met two, one in Saudi and one in Pakistan, and it seemed to me, in, you know, my totally sort of journalistic uh, impression was that the Saudi was not going to fight again, and he'd been looked after by the Saudi state, actually, pretty well, and they'd given him a, a future and a job and a wife, and she gave him a wife, uh, and he looked to me like he'd he was he'd had enough. But the, the one I met in Pakistan it seemed to be quite clear he was going to go back to fight. Is is there any sort of more reliable estimate than my 50-50 of, of how many did that?
0: So uh, by law, the Director of National Intelligence in the United States each year releases a report about their estimates of what they call re-engagement. But it's quite a brief report. It's only two pages long. Um, you can look it up on the Internet. And it gives, it gives statistics for who they think have re-engaged. So there are a couple of things that we can tell from it first is that over time the numbers of re have have dropped substantially you know the vast majority of prisoners were released under the bush administration and the report divides it into bush administration and obama administration and later but the the real struggle with that is that we don't know exactly what re-engagement means we don't know if, if that's just releasing videos on YouTube, or if that means actually picking up a weapon and fighting. And of course, with the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, there's much less of a battlefield uh, for anyone to join, even if, if some of those prisoners released in the early days uh, wanted to in, engage in, in battlefield fight against the United States and its allies.
1: So that's the official sort of uh, not very clear version. Are there any other studies on that?
0: No, it's really just the, the two-page DNI report that comes out every year.
1: Now, you've mentioned torture as you know, being, on one definition, something that everyone faced. What other malpractice have you come across? You've been on this for 12 years. You're a lawyer, in a way, uh, I mean, paid by the US government, but up against the US government. What other things have gone on that have been you know, unethical?
0: Well, we've seen some really appalling things. Um, one of those is The treatment of my own client, Amar Albaluchi, in CIA black sites where on one occasion, he was tortured not with the even pretense of getting any information, but because a a lead interrogator wanted to obtain certificates of competence uh, for four interrogators who were working with him. And so they essentially lined up and took turns bashing Albaluchi against a wall, uh, smashing his head until they got tired it each got tired apparently it went on for hours and that wasn't even for the pretence of obtaining information it was just for practice just to get certificates so they could said that they had had, had engaged in this behavior and so they could receive some sort of certification from the cia that that's really shocking because it puts the lie to any conceivable idea that that there's a an application of pain that results in information because that's wasn't there what was happening at all one of the other examples from Guantanamo itself that we've seen is the use of of force feeding Um, at force feeding has been used against a wide variety of prisoners um, at Guantanamo it's been condemned by international or medical organizations as not just providing medical care without the consent of the patient, which we all know that we, when we go to the doctor, they won't touch us without us signing a release saying that we can, but actually using violence to force medical care uh, onto detainees. There have been examples of forced medication. There was massive solitary confinement for years at a time. The list of the abuses that have gone on at Guantanamo just goes on and on.
1: And in terms of your work as a lawyer, what have you faced?
0: As you say, I'm paid by the Pentagon, but that has not stopped anybody from intruding into the defense function in the case. You know, in order for an adversarial system to work, there has to be some sort of equality of arms between the prosecution and the defense. But what we faced in this situation is intrusions into the largely Pentagon. Protected uh, defense function over and over. There, uh, we discovered a uh, listening devices in the rooms that were given to us uh, by by Guantanamo to have attorney-client meetings. On one occasion, the FBI recruited an informant on one of the 9-11 defense teams. And what was amazing to me is actually less left a copy of the informant contract with them, so which they literally turned over to the attorneys. So there was no question about the fact that this happened. We've seen legal materials seized from, from the prisoners over and over. It's really a situation where there is a disrespect for the idea of a defense in a prosecution that is being brought by the United States and is seeking the death penalty.
1: And I think we should hear a bit more about your client, who you've worked so many years with, and he is very interesting in in one respect. I mean, I'm sure in many respects, but he he's related to this extraordinary family that produced uh, Ramsey Youssef, who was the man who organised the first failed attack on the World Trade Center, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who organised the second successful one, and and this is another relation, right?
0: Yes, that's right. And if he if he wasn't the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, it's not clear to me that he would be involved in the case. If he wasn't related, he would probably be viewed as a person that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed used, because the only allegation against him is that he he sent money that was given to him from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, wired it using sometimes using his own name to people who called him and asked him for it. So I always think of this as the world's first death penalty prosecution for money laundering. There's no allegation that he ever went to Afghanistan to to fight in anything. There's no allegation he's ever held a weapon. He's never been to any of these training camps. I mean, he's he's really a civilian in this situation, charged in a military commission. But it's also turned out that he has been an exemplary opportunity to examine the torture program because of the incredible torture that was used against him i mentioned earlier the the fact that he was used as quote a training prop when he was being tortured in the, in the uh, black sites but there he was so much of an example of the kind of abuses that were happening there that they made a movie that he was, uh, as a character was featured in called zero dark 30. And in the first 25 minutes of that movie, there are four scenes of torture taking place. And the character who is depicted, there is Amar al-Baluchi is, his name is even Amar in the, uh, in the movie. And he's explained in the movie as the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. So, um, it, it really demonstrates the use of water torture, it, the use of beatings, the use of uh, forced stress positions. He's been through so much. It, the last thing I want to say specifically about that is that he's also an incredible example of the medical effects of the use of torture. I, I talked earlier about how they lined up and, and hit his head against the wall for hours at a time. And when that happened, of course it caused a traumatic brain injury. How could it not? You know, people get traumatic brain injury from one car accident. But these repeated damage to his head has resulted to severe problems with him over time. Brain damage, inability to concentrate or focus, really the same sort of Severe traumatic brain injuries that we see in Western service members who uh, have been involved in war.
1: I, w- I wanted to ask you a bit about the effects on the individuals at Guantanamo. We'll perhaps do that at the end. I'd be very interested to hear how they've, you know, responded and and dealt with this astonishing long period of their lives that they've been locked in this in this uh, place. But but first of all, just on the zero dark thirty. This was the the basically. The, the, the big Hollywood film on the, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden. There was talk at the time that, that had been that the producers and directors had been officially briefed. So w- was that information about your client being tortured basically from official sources?
0: Yes. And that's all been confirmed through Freedom of Information Act releases, including the fact that two CIA agents were disciplined for releasing information. What was most fascinating about that is that those filmmakers were given access to information that we as the defense team were not. In fact, we went to court arguing that as trusted agents with uh, high level security clearances, we should have access to the information about uh, the torture of Al baluchi that the filmmakers got and were denied. So in the end, uh, the filmmakers got more access to classified information about the torture of Mario Baluchi than we as his defense attorneys did.
1: All right. Uh, And now then, when you say he he never went to Afghanistan or any of these places to fight and he was just uh, wiring money, where was he then? And how come he got arrested? Well, he
0: was in Dubai and then went back to Pakistan and he was arrested in Pakistan.
1: Uh huh. So that I mean, we should perhaps cover that. That of the um, seven hundred and whatever it was you said, who have been through Guantanamo, how many of those were? Do you know roughly, maybe not precisely, were picked up in Pakistan?
0: There'd be a, a very large number, hundreds and hundreds. Yeah,
1: hundreds and hundreds. And 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 others were picked up from what? I think someone from UAE did they, or or not? Or Saudi? Where, where did others come from? So,
0: you know, a large number were also captured in Afghanistan, right? There was a time when basically any person who was not Afghan and many people who were Afghan uh, were sold uh, or turned over um, to the Americans or their allies from, uh, you know, basically as vengeance or tribal disagreements. So there are a large number of people who came both through Afghanistan and Pakistan um, on in the pipeline to Guantanamo. It, the Other countries are much smaller numbers. There are people who are arrested in other places, but uh, those numbers are much smaller.
1: Yeah. So mainly Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan. And I should have asked you this earlier, actually, but I I, I must ask it now so as not to leave it out. You, you sort of said at one point, you know, you're not clear that very much useful information came out of all this torture. Did any useful information come out of any of the Guantanamo detainees, as far as you know, uh, whether by torture or other means? I mean, did they give any useful information to the Americans?
0: The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence looked at that question, and their conclusion was basically no, that there wasn't any useful information that came out of the torture program. And what information there was that came out of it could have easily been obtained by other sources. So, You know, the most comprehensive examination of this question uh, by anybody with a great deal of resources and access concluded that the torch program was not just immoral and illegal, but also
1: ineffective. So, now, then, when Obama came into office, he was clear he was going to close it and he didn't manage. Why didn't he manage?
0: Principally because of American politics and president obama talked about one of his greatest regrets is that he didn't close guantanamo he issued an order requiring that guantanamo be closed within one year uh, of his inauguration and then later extended that time and it actually wasn't until the trump administration that the order to close guantanamo was rescinded Principally, it appears that at some point he made a choice between spending the political capital to close Guantanamo and spending the political capital to move his health care program forward, and that he chose the health care program over uh, closing Guantanamo.
1: And this is you're basically saying that he would be accused of releasing people who are going to go on to harm America, and, and that has a political cost?
0: Yes, and the whole, you know, Guantanamo is as much a metaphor as it is a literal place. And it's a metaphor for abuse and torture on one hand, but it's a metaphor for being tough in the war on terror on the other side. So, you know, it has political implications beyond its actual importance to U.S. national security.
1: When you talk about the torture program, I mean, are you clear that it's no longer happening, first of all, we should say? Yes. Right. And and so what are the conditions that these remaining men are living in? Uh,
0: They're living in conditions which are very similar to a, a maximum security prison. They are no longer in solitary confinement, but they are in very close confinement.
1: What sort of facilities do they have?
0: The prisons are small. They were much larger at some point, but over time they were divided into different prisons and they were closed down. So, you know, there's a relatively small number of people On the order of somewhere between 12 and 18 living in in each prison facility so you've seen you've probably seen pictures you can just google them of of what they look like with the long hallway with uh with closed doors off of the hallway it's it's not that different from other prisons now early in in Guantanamo, and early when the men were transferred out of the CIA program, they were kept entirely in solitary confinement for several years, for fear that they would, you know, talk to each other about about what they learned in the CIA programs. And but it's not that way anymore. It's not solitary confinement, but it is still very, very strict confinement.
1: And you, you've been dealing with this for so long. Can you describe to us what I presume is a range of reactions to these very extreme? circumstances these people have been in for for so many years, what is the range of impact it's had on their personalities, on, the, on their behavior?
0: Yes, that's a great question, actually, and, and very much a range. You know, there are some men who, and I haven't met them all, right, by, you know, I've met probably about a quarter of the men who are there now, because you can't just walk up and talk to people, you have to have some official reason. Some of them will tell you, Look, I'm a tough person. This didn't this whole thing didn't really affect me. There are others like Amar who will tell you I am broken, that I have not really survived this. You know, there's a there's a powerful statement about torture that it's when they kill you but you don't die. And there are definitely men like Amar who that's their experience that they don't even feel like they are the same person uh, who went into the torture program that they were killed and that they were sort of metaphorically or, or spiritually or mentally brought back as a different person because it's such a personality shattering experience to go through years of intentional infliction of pain by other human beings. And so I would say there's a wide range. Some are more physically damaged. You take Hadi Alaraki, for example, uh, who has had six emergency back surgeries since he's been at Guantanamo, can only barely move his legs, um, much less propel himself around. Or Abu Faraja Libby, who's had severe brain damage, you know, there are there are many people who are who are have been severely damaged both mentally and physically at Guantanamo.
1: Can you talk at all about what it's done to their faith?
0: Yes, you know, faith is is a protective factor when it comes to abuse by others, you know, and we see that in prisons a lot, right? The people turn to their faith as a support, and. Uh, I would say that's true at Guantanamo. One of the most important changes that's happened over the years is that the men are allowed to pray communally now. Uh, When they were in solitary confinement, sometimes they wouldn't even know, you know, when the prayer times were, which is, you know, to Muslims extremely important uh, knowing the proper prayer times. But now, either through, you know, an opening in a door or otherwise, they can pray all at the same time. And that's been a, a critical element of their faith in their community.
1: I imagine it must have shaken the faith of, of some. I mean, I do, do take your point that people do tend to turn to religion in prison. But, uh, you know, given that they could take the view they've been abandoned after fighting what they thought was a religious fight, uh, they've been abandoned in some way by their, their God. I wonder whether some have been able to, you know, in that in that atmosphere, especially with a group. Uh, praying together, uh, break away from their faith? Or have you not seen that?
0: I haven't seen that. I haven't seen any example of that. Like like everybody else, different people have different approaches to their faith. Some are more scholarly. Some are more adherents to the basics. Uh, some have memorized the entire Quran. Um, I think there are a wide variety of approaches, but I have not had the experience of anybody turning away from their faith at Guantanamo.
1: What about the guards have you have you noticed a range of reactions to this situation from them
0: Yes absolutely I I would say the most common reaction among the guards is I just don't want to ever think about that again but then there are both there are other ends of that some people who are guards you know write books or articles about how proud they are of what they've done, and then others uh, write books or articles or social media about how terrible it was that what they were involved in, uh, how much it's damaged them. I've certainly met a number of guards who seem to be severely psychologically damaged by the things that they saw or the things that they did, that essentially they consider the military to have inflicted a moral injury on them by requiring them to be a part of this inhumane confinement at
1: Guantanamo just a couple of areas to discuss before we close this. One on trials and one on when Guantanamo will be closed. But just on the trials, what's going on? I mean, let's start with your client, and it'll be an example maybe which has things in common with other other, other detainees maybe. What, what is you know, his legal situation now? Where's it heading? What's going to happen to him? How long will it take?
0: The first 9-11 case was brought in 2008, and then it was dropped by the Obama administration, but then the Obama administration brought it back in 2012, and we are coming up on the 11th anniversary of the case. They were arraigned in May of 2012, and since that time, there has been protracted litigation in the case over every kind of question the most important questions of course revolve around torture most of the of the evidence that the prosecution has is tainted by torture in some way or another and there's been a huge amount of discussion on the question of Will the prosecution be allowed to use that evidence, which is tainted by torture? One of the early judges, and there have been seven, decided that the prosecution would not be able to use the evidence. But then that question was reconsidered, and now it's back on the table. But there have been a lot of other questions that have been considered, too, including what is the relationship of Guantanamo to international obligations, like the Convention Against Torture and the Geneva Conventions? And what is the legitimacy of a system, a military system, set up to try Civilians for crimes, which at, in many cases are not have not traditionally been war crimes. So it's been a huge process. Last year, the parties started in becoming involved in plea negotiations, over, offering the possibility of judicial finality to the case uh, through a negotiated resolution, and that's still going on. We're still waiting to hear from the Biden administration what their position on our proposals is.
1: Can I yep. just understand that you're saying that some of the detainees are saying they want their cases finished, and, and what they're prepared to make some admission is it in return for that?
0: That's right, and that's happened in two cases: the Majid Khan uh, recently, the Majid Khan case recently, who's now been released, and the Hadi Al-Araki case, who has a commitment from the government to find him a. A location uh, where he could be resettled, um, given his terrible medical problems, and that could happen in the other cases. And, and there are discussions about it in the 9/11 case. The idea of bringing some kind of judicial finality to not just the prisoners but also victim family members and others. You know, we're talking about it's been more than 21 years since 9/11 at this point, and there's no real opportunity in sight for the for the case to be over other than the possibility of a negotiated resolution
1: well because because these other issues torture international obligations all the rest of it many others no doubt just mean that you could never get to finalize the cases
0: it certainly appears that way i mean we're we're not really that much closer to resolving those issues than we were say 5 years ago and if the case returns to actively get litigation there's there's many many questions hundreds of witnesses who are going to have to testify and many many questions are going to have to be resolved
1: i mean you, you say that some people so well, let me ask you this can you estimate and i realize it could be nothing other than a very sort of broad guess of those remaining how many do you think will be released and how many will be held in detention in some form, whether it's in a U.S. prison or somewhere indefinitely? Sure.
0: Of the Of the remaining 31 prisoners, 17 have been cleared for release. So we can put those in the category of if the administration can find a place to repatriate or resettle them, and most of them are Yemenis, which makes it a little bit complicated, then those people will be will be released and placed somewhere. And when I say cleared for release, I mean every U.S. intelligence agency has signed off on the fact that they are no longer a threat to U.S. national security. So that's the majority, right? That's 17. But
1: but just There's to be clear one. on that, Yemen yeah. won't have them and no one else will have them.
0: Well, some other people will have them. You know, just last week, Al Sharbi was... Was released and and sent to Saudi Arabia. So there are possible and and Khan was sent to Belize. So there are possibilities for resettlement other than home country. Though I should be clear, Sharby is is uh, Saudi, but but Khan obviously was not Belizean. So that's 17 of them. There is one who will have to serve a sentence somewhere unless his case is overturned on appeal, and that's all Balul. His case is coming up before the DC Circuit and uh, could be overturned on appeal, but otherwise he's serving a life sentence. There are three men who are still the forever prisoners, including Muhammad Rahim, who is Afghan, and the, the hope is that those men will move through the clearance process and will eventually be cleared for release because it's clear they're not going to be charged with anything. And that leaves the 10 who are in military commissions process uh, one way or another. Hadi al-Iraqi has already pled guilty and has an agreement to serve a sentence and and be resettled. And then that leaves nine others who are still in active litigation.
1: And one of those is, is probably the highest profile of them all, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed.
0: We don't know what will happen to him. He is involved in the same 9-11 conspiracy case that Mr. Abolucci is involved in, and he's engaged in the plea negotiations uh, like like the other men who are involved. So there is a possibility of bringing judicial finality to his case by a negotiated resolution, or that might fall through and the case will return to litigation for nobody knows how many more years.
1: And and finally, then, when will Guantanamo close? I mean, you just the way you describe it is so well. It's so difficult. There are so many issues and uncertainties and different types of categories of prisoner. When does it end?
0: Right now, there's no real prospect for it to end. Um, the Congress ha- each year for the about the past t- decade has passed a law that it's impossible to bring any prisoner. To the United States for any purpose, uh, whether that be to serve a sentence or to stand trial or for medical care. And that creates real difficulty with someone like Al Balool, who has a life sentence adjudged by a military commission after he boycotted his trial. And uh, he has to be held somewhere. And so right now, the only place under U.S. law where that can be is Guantanamo. So I I do believe that the Biden administration is working to reduce the population of Guantanamo. And, you know, in the last six months, uh, it's made real strides in that direction. But it has some difficult decisions to make about the long term prospects for Guantanamo.
1: Uh, Jay Connell I mean I I guess you should be incredibly well briefed on this after so many years working on it but, but you really are and so thank you very much for just explaining to us what's going on and what might happen. Thank you for having me.